Prologue to the Tragic Bride This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roger Moline The Tragic Bride by Francis Brett Young Prologue I never met Gabrielle Hewish. I suppose I should really call her by that name, for her marriage took the color out of it as surely as if she had entered a nunnery and adopted the frigid and sisterly label of some female saint. Nobody had ever heard of her husband before she married him, and nobody ever heard of Gabrielle afterwards, except those who were acquainted with the story of Arthur Payne, as I was, and perhaps a coroner's jury in Devonshire, a county where juries are more than usually slow of apprehension. In these days you will not even find the name of Hewish in Derbret, for Gabrielle was the baronet's only child, and when Sir Jocelyn died, in the early days of his daughter's married life, the family, which for the last half-century had been putting out no more than a few feeble and not astonishingly brilliant leaves on its one living branch, withered altogether, as well it might in the thin Irish soil where it had stubbornly held its own since the days of Queen Elizabeth. After all, baronetcies are cheap enough in Ireland, and one, more or less, could make very little difference to the amenities of County Galway, where Roscarna, for all I know, may have been absorbed and parceled out by the congested district board ten years ago. Even in clubs and places where they gossip, I doubt if the Hewishes of Roscarna are remembered, for modern memories are short, and in Gabrielle's day, the illustrated Sunday newspapers had not contrived to specialize in the smiles of well-connected young Irish women. Of course, the pain episode, I'm not sure it should not rather be called the pain miracle, had always lain stored somewhere in my literary attic. Its theme was too exciting for a man who deals in such lumber to have forgotten. But that admirable woman, Mrs. Payne, had whetted my curiosity to such an extent that I weakly promised her secrecy before she told it to me. "'I can't resist telling you,' she said, "'because it wouldn't be fair of me to deprive you. It's far too much in your line.' She even flattered me. "'You'd do it awfully well, too, you know. But I have a sort of sentimental regard for her.' not admiration or anything of that kind, but an indefinite feeling, that noblesse oblige. In her own extraordinary way, she did us a good turn, and however carefully you wrapped it up, she might recognize her portrait and feel embarrassed. It's she that I'm thinking of, not Arthur. Arthur was too young at the time to realize what was happening and if he saw your picture of two women desperately fighting over the soul or body of a boy of seventeen who resembled himself, I doubt if he'd tumble to the portrait. He's a dear, transparently honest person like his father. Still, I don't want to hurt her, and so, if you want the story, you must gloat over it in private, and cherish it as an unwritten masterpiece.' 
Probably if you did write it, it wouldn't be a masterpiece at all. Console yourself with that. She told me her story, for of course I gave her the promise that she demanded, in a midge-infested corner of the garden at Overton, while Arthur, the unconscious subject of it, was playing tennis with the clergyman's daughter, whom he married a year later. I think Mrs. Payne knew that this affair was coming off, and offered me the tale as a combination of oral confession and nunc dimittis, watching the boy while she told it to me with a sort of hungry maternal satisfaction, as somebody whom she had not only brought into the world, but for whose salvation she was responsible. No doubt she had put up a hard fight for him, and had every reason to be satisfied, though Gabrielle shared the honors of the mother's triumph in her own defeat. We sat there talking until all the birds were silent, but a single blackbird that made a noise in the shrubbery, like that of two pebbles knocked sharply together, until the young people in the tennis court could no longer see to play, and the tall Californian poppies at the back of the herbaceous border that was her special pride shone like moonflowers in the dusk. "'When I think of all that, that summer,' she said with a sigh, I'm so thankful, so thankful. And then Arthur came back with his sweater over his arm, swinging his racket, and she went straight up to him and kissed him with the sort of modesty that you would have expected in a young girl rather than a middle-aged widow. You dear thing, Mater, he said, kissing her forehead in return. This is the land of digression into which memories of Overton lead one. My only excuse is that part of the story, and indeed its emotional climax, belongs to Overton, to that smoothly ordered country house with its huge sentinel elms and its peculiar atmosphere of leisure and peace. No doubt Mrs. Payne was aware of this when she kissed her son, from the lawn where we were sitting, she could see the yew parlor and the cypress hedge in the shadow of which she had stood on the tremendous evening about which she had been telling me. We walked back to the terrace, and on the way she gave me a shy smile, half triumph, half apology. She never mentioned the episode again, and though the story fermented in my brain, maturing, as I hoped, like a choice vintage, and has emerged from time to time when my mind has been free from other work, I have kept my promise and have neither repeated it nor written it till this day. Now, at last, I find myself absolved. Arthur Payne, I believe, is happily married to the fresh young person with whom he was playing tennis. Soon after their marriage, they emigrated to the backs of Canada, or was it New Zealand? Somewhere, at any rate, beyond the reach of colonial additions. Overton is now in the possession of a Midland soap boiler. Mrs. Payne, having fulfilled her main function in life and fearing English winters, has retired to a small villa at Mustapha Superior, near Algiers, where, though she lived forever, 
she is not likely to read this book. And Gabrielle, the beautiful Gabrielle, is dead. The news came as a shock to me. For the moment, I, who had never even set eyes on her, suffered the pain of an almost personal bereavement. I was moved, as poets are moved by the vanishing of something beautiful from the earth. Was she, then, so beautiful? I don't know. But I like to persuade myself that she was a fiery, elemental creature of a rare and pathetic brilliance. For the sake of her story, no doubt. But for the moment, when old Colonel Hoylake, who always began his Times by quotations from the obituary column, he had survived the age when births or marriages are interesting, suddenly brought out the word Hewish. Gabrielle Hewish, I was startled out of the state of pleasant lethargy into which a day's fishing on the Dulas and the Matthews beer had plunged me, and became suddenly wide awake. I had the feeling that some bright thing had fallen, a kingfisher, a dragonfly. Hewish, he murmured again. Gabrielle Hewish. Well, well. You know the family? Yes, I knew her father, poor feller, he said. Now I was full of eagerness. It had come over me all at once that this obituary notice was, for me, a happy release. It meant that, for a month or two, all through the mesmeric hours that I should spend up to my knees in the swift doulas, alone with the dippers and the ring ousels and the plaintive sandpipers, I should be able to explore, to my own content, this forbidden treasure, searching in the dark soul of Marmaduke Considine and the tender heart of Gabrielle, threading the lanes that spread in a net about the schoolhouse at Lapton Hewish, brooding over the deceptive peace of Overton Manor, recalling the scene in the yew parlor, the atmosphere, terrifically charged with emotion, of the day when Mrs. Payne took her courage in her hands and fought like a maternal tigress for Arthur's soul. My heart beat faster as I led the old fisherman on with, Yes? He laid aside the times and lit one of the long Trichinopoly cheroots that he smoked perpetually, settling himself back in the comfortable hotel chair. Hewish, he said, Sir Jocelyn Hewish. That was the father's name. Lived at a place called Roscarna in the west of Ireland. He was an extraordinarily good fisherman, tied his own flies. I have some sea-trout flies in my book that he tied thirty years ago, a kind of blue teal that he'd invented. Of course, they had a fine string of white-trout lakes, many a good fish I've had there, but the remarkable thing about Roscana was this. Right in front of the house, at the bottom of the sunk fence, there ran a stretch of river, about three hundred yards of it, clear, deep slides with a level, muddy bottom. One winter, old Sir Jocelyn took it into his head to clean up this bit of water, and when they came to scrape the bottom, 
they found under the mud that the whole bed of the stream was paved with marble slabs, like a swimming bath, Connemara marble. They went on with the job because it looked so well, all this green, veined stuff shining through the clear water. So they scoured the bottom and fixed up a banderbast for keeping the mud from coming downstream from above, and having made a sort of stew-pond, put in four or five hundred yearling brownies. You'd never believe how those fish grew. In a couple of years the water was full of three and four pounders, lovely fish with a small head and pink flesh like a salmon. Quite a curious thing. And you'll never guess the reason. No sooner had they cleared away the mud than the place swarmed with freshwater shrimps. The yearlings throve on them like a smolt when it goes down to the sea. That was the remarkable thing about Roscarna. I knew, of course, that it wasn't. The remarkable thing about Roscarna, to anyone with a hayporth of imagination, was Gabrielle Hewish. Luckily, that admirable gossip Hoylake had another interest in life besides fishing stories and one that served my purpose, genealogy. It is an interest not uncommon with old soldiers. That is why they often write such incredibly dull memoirs. And after allowing him a number of sporting digressions in the direction of a Lucanilon pike, and the altogether admirable black game shooting at Roscarna, which, he assured me, was better than anything in the West except Lord Dudley's shoot on the Corrib, I played him tactfully into the deeper water that interested me, and by the end of the week had succeeded in drawing from him a good deal of irrelevant family history, and what is more to the point, a fairly consecutive account of the last of the Hewishes, Sir Jocelyn and his amazing daughter. As he told it to me in the parlor of the fishing inn beside the Dulas, I began to realize that, accidentally, and at the moment when I needed it most, I had stumbled on a fountain of curious knowledge. If I had missed meeting him, my story, fascinating as it was, would have been incomplete. It armed me with a whole new theory of Gabrielle, suggesting causes, or, if you like, preparations for the extraordinary episode that followed. It showed me that I had been flattering myself that I knew all about it, when, as a matter of fact, I had only got hold of one, and the wrong, end of the stick. I fished the Dulas for a fortnight, hypnotized, pondering on the whole curious business, not only when the bright water rippled by me, but when old Hoylake told me stories of Masir and Tigerfish and Barracuda that he had missed, when I was walking through the pine woods under the mountain, when I was eating, and, I verily believe, when I was asleep. I had thought before that my friend Mrs. Payne was the heroine of the story. Now I am not sure that Gabrielle does not share the honors. End of Prologue Recording by Roger Moline